good preachers spend most of their time correcting congregations, not commending them. After all, we we know enough about sin to know that we all have a lot of progress to make, so every congregation needs correction. We all have a lot to learn. So that's the usual format. We don't want to cultivate pride. We don't want to cultivate self-righteousness. But even an apostle, every now and then, even in the midst of threats from false teachers and a bully like Diotrephes, even an apostle pauses to affirm the grace of God that he sees in a fellow believer's life. That's what I want to do this morning. This passage actually makes me think of 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2. I wrote that on the note sheet. Paul said to the Thessalonians, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. He says, brothers and sisters, you're living to please God. It's marvelous, wonderful. Now let's do it some more. Maybe that's how we're going to read third john that's how i want to show you uh, how john is writing in these first uh, this first section of this book uh, you could maybe think about these first eight verses of third john like you think about uh, flowering trees in the spring does anybody here spend any time on long lane spend time on long lane i spend a lot of time on long lane and i drive by cherry hill and on tuesday of this week as i was driving by and just started to notice the trees at the Cherry Hill Orchard, just beginning to show their pink as the uh, buds are beginning to bloom. Acres and acres and acres of these pink flower-topped trees. It's beautiful. If, you're, if your eyes are watering and your nose is running, it's hard to see. I know that. But spring is coming, right? It's going to get warm. If you haven't already, it's time to pack away your flannel and your sweater, uh, sweaters and your wool socks and your heavy coats. You'll get them out again. I'm, I promise you will get them out again. Uh, But it's almost time. It's almost time for flip-flops and beach trips, right? Um, Spring is springing. There's signs of it everywhere. It's wonderful. I want to show you from this passage how the truth is blooming in Gaius' life. What does John see? He's, He's seeing the bud of the gospel break forth into blooms. What does John see in him that brings him such joy? That's That's what we're going to talk about. I I see these same things in our church. Three signs today we're going to talk about of blooming truth. Now, before we get to any of them, you guys are good readers of the Bible because I'm sure you're you're already wondering, who's this Gaius guy anyway? Right? That's what we we wonder about when we read letters. Who's it for? Well, um, we don't know very much about Gaius. Gaius was one of the most common names in this period of time. Uh, There are a couple other Gaiuses in the Bible. It's unlikely that the same person who's the recipient of this letter. Based on what John wrote, Gaius is a leader in the church. Um, he has, or at least he has some influence. He's a growing follower of Jesus. And John is commending him. How is he commending him? Three things. First of all, John sees in Gaius' life, and I think our church is marked by gospel-shaped love. Gospel-shaped love. It doesn't surprise you, does it? It's a letter from John. What else are we going to talk about but love, right? Love. Gaius' love is mentioned specifically in verse 6. They have told the church about your love. And then I think the quality of this love, how we learn about what this love is, comes from John's own example in verse 1 where he says, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. That's what I want to talk about with you for a few minutes. What does it mean to love someone in the truth? 
Now, it's possible that this translation, this could be translated, uh, guys whom I love truly, uh, sincerely, really, but that's not how the way John talks about the truth. John loves Gaius for the truth's sake. Uh, It's the sphere in which he loves Gaius. The truth about Jesus that John proclaims, the gospel, shapes and directs and, and forms his love for Gaius. This is the sort of love that believers have for one another. Uh, It reflects gospel truth. The gospel is the chief reason that we love one another. It defines the boundaries and the contours of our love for one another. Their love, Gaius' love, our love, it smells and tastes like gospel truth. It's it's the pattern by which we love one another. What does that mean? What does that look like? Um, It's love that's wholly different from the way that the world normally talks about love. To love one another in the truth means resisting some of the impulses that often drive love outside of the truth. I want to think with me about some of these impulses that gospel-driven love resists. Uh, First of all, gospel-driven love, gospel-shaped love, resists the impulse to love people based on external characteristics, based on external characteristics alone. How you look, how you speak, how you smell, your education, your income level, your, uh, your, how you dress. When I qualify gospel-shaped love that way, you know immediately that I am not talking here about romantic love. All of those things play a role in romantic love, but not necessarily in gospel-shaped love. Think about what God said in 1 Samuel 16, 7. He says, uh, the text says, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I've read news articles in recent months about the role that smell plays in love. Uh, Did you know that that your attraction to certain people is based on how they smell? You say, clearly, some people stink. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about their soap or their deodorant or their cologne or perfume or lack thereof. Uh, But I'm talking about the odor that their body naturally has. Uh, You might not be able to consciously describe it, but certain people attract or repel you based on their odor. It has to do with pheromones. Now, scientists are not exactly sure why this is or exploring all the various reasons. One suggestion I heard was that women might be turned off by men who have an RH blood factor that would complicate pregnancy and childbirth. And, and it's evident in how you smell. I don't know. Maybe. Man, God made human beings pretty interesting, didn't he? That, that smell, though, is a moot point here because we're not talking about romantic love. We're talking about love in the body of Christ. It's different. It's not focused on externals. So there's the impulse. We have to overcome this impulse to love people only on the basis of external characteristics. We also have to overcome the impulse to form cliques. The impulse to form cliques. It is natural for human beings to draw, be drawn to people like themselves you're naturally drawn to people of your own age and uh, your own uh, interests. So people you are naturally drawn to, people of your own race. Think about a high school cafeteria. This is stereotypically where this happens. Right? You walk into a high school cafeteria, there's a table for athletes and a table for farmers and a table for nerds and a table for the music people. The cool people sit over here and I sat over here. You know, that's how that works, these tables. 
I heard recently, I hope this isn't true, but I heard recently that someone say they experienced the same thing in a local retirement home. They went into the, the, the cafeteria, and there's the cool table, and the table for nerds, and the table for jocks. I would have hoped that you'd growl by, uh, out of that by now. I'm not sure. Here's, you know, my suspicion about that. I, my suspicion is that cliques tend to thrive in single-generation environments. So uh, uh, all those people that are all the same age, they divide up by, by these categories. So you, you know what a high school cafeteria really needs. They really need old people and little people. That's what they need. And, and, and you know what, what old people living in nursing homes need? They need little children and teenagers. Multi-generational communities tend to, to uh, take out this natural forming uh, of cliques. That's why we rejoice at every birth in our church and every birthday. So when you hit 80 or you hit 90, we rejoice. We need every septuagenarian and octogenarian we can get and every baby. See, without that spread, you know what happens? We get weird. That's what happens without that spread. We need the spread. The truth of the gospel is that God calls all kinds of people to himself. And since God welcomes them, so do we. Gospel-shaped love transcends all those boundaries that we naturally put in place. Here's a third impulse that gospel-shaped love confronts. The impulse to bear grudges. The impulse to exclude. Bear grudges and exclude. I'm talking about the natural impulse we have towards unforgiveness. The natural impulse we have towards bitterness or, or revenge. The, the impulse that we have to resist to repair broken relationships. Why do we resist those impulses? We resist those impulses because the gospel teaches us that we're all sinners. And that no one is perfect. And we all offend and we all hurt one another at some point in time. It comes very naturally to me to be offensive. Michael Emlet's a medical doctor. He's a, he's a counselor. He's written a lot of fine books. He says that we, we who are followers of Jesus, when we think about one another, we need to view one another through three different lenses. We are all at the same time sinners. We are all at the same time sufferers. And we are all at the same time saints. We are sinners, we are sufferers, and we are saints. We're all sinners. We all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is about us a particular stench. We bring the smell of death with us. That's what sin produces. Even, even forgiven sinners, because we live in this broken world and we still carry with us this broken sinful nature. We're naturally in rebellion against God and we bring this pollution with us. We're insensitive at times and rude and envious and inconsiderate and angry and selfish. We're sinners. Have you ever heard the, uh, the um, comparison? I, I can't remember who first said it, but uh, they, they said that the church is a lot like Noah's Ark. The church is a lot like Noah's Ark. You could barely stand the stench inside if it weren't for the disaster outside. We're sinners. We're also sufferers. Of course we're sufferers. We suffer because we hurt one another in our sin. It's what sin does. Sin causes suffering. I read a comment this week from a professor who was talking about her class, teaching her class, and there was a student who came in late uh, and sat down, and at the end of the class, 
she was kind of miffed about this, the professor, about the student who was late. And at the end of the class, the student came up and apologized. I'm so sorry that I was late this morning. My mother died this morning. I didn't know where else to go, so I just came to class. And you, you, you just don't know. You don't know the suffering that people around you are experiencing. But the gospel tells you that we are all sufferers and sinners. And for those who are followers of Jesus, we're all saints. We're forgiven sinners. We're sufferers who have met the mercy and kindness of God that Christ died for our sins. We've been singing about it this morning. We've turned and trusted in him. We found life and forgiveness in his name. And we're all on the path toward him. That faith in the Lord Jesus is the one thing that we all have in common. Now, I'm sure like, something like this has happened to you before, but last summer my family was at a, a reunion, a Cedarville reunion. It was up in um, Lidditz, I think is where we were, somebody's house. We went there for dinner, and, and any Cedarville graduate in the area was invited to this dinner. I was there, and there were a couple of young representatives from Cedarville University that, that were there, uh, people from the alumni department. Well, I met this one man. I introduced myself. Nice to meet you. Uh, he sa- I said, where are you from? He said, I'm from Rochester, New York. I said, oh, I'm from a small town not too far from Rochester called Perry. He said, you're from Perry? He sa- I said, yes. He said, so am I. He said, no one knows where Perry is. I just say Rochester. It's a lot easier. It's true. He's from my hometown. We started talking a little bit and, and, and found out that he knew Mark. We have a common friend named Mark. You know Mark? Yes, I know Mark. I love Mark. Mark's a great guy. I love you more now because you love Mark and so do I. Mark is our connection. And we walk into a church of Jesus Christ. You know Jesus? Yes, I do. I love you more because we both love Jesus. You see... Um, when Jesus looms large in a group of people, this is why we sing about Jesus so much, why we talk about the gospel so much. When Jesus looms large, when his death is proclaimed, his resurrection is celebrated, his followers grow in their love for one another. We learn to forbear and we learn to forgive. We move toward one another under the banner of his excellence. Jesus looms large in our church, so we have gospel-shaped love. Now this points us to another impulse that gospel-shaped love overcomes. This is the impulse to ignore sin. We have to overcome this impulse. Gospel-shaped love does that. Some of you are old enough to remember a television show that was popular. Maybe you've seen some of it in reruns. It was on the 80s. It was a television show called Cheers. Remember Cheers? So um, Cheers was a very popular sitcom. It was set during the 1980s. It was set in a bar, so we Baptists couldn't admit that we watched it. But uh, it was very popular. So, and, 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 and during the heyday of Cheers, it was not uncommon. I'd go to conferences or I'd hear people, preachers preach, and they would say, wouldn't it be great if the church was a community like that on the television show Cheers? Because they're all friends. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. You recognize that song, the lyrics. The show had quirky characters, of course. There was a know-it-all, and there was a mooch, and there was a clueless but kind-hearted doofus. There was a handsome lead who was slept around. They accepted one another for who they are. Yes, that's true. Let's accept one another. But 
there is in the Bible this call to holiness. It would be easier if we could ignore that, but, but the Bible calls us, our church covenant says it, to rebuke and admonish one another as occasion may require. This is what gospel-shaped love does. It's not easy. We blunder around at this sometimes. You, you step into someone's life and you, and you try to help them and, and you, you're trying to work with the details of their heart and mind. Gospel-shaped love moves us forward. It's difficult to balance this out. Acceptance and love and the call to holiness. But, but we're working on it. Brothers and sisters, we're working on it. We're, we're, we're getting better at it. Sometimes this results in church discipline, but it's what gospel-shaped love looks like. That's one sign of blooming truth, gospel-shaped love. Now here's a second sign in this passage of blooming truth. Secondly, eternity-shaped joy. Eternity-shaped joy. That's the subject of verses 3 and 4. Can we look at them again? Verses 3 and 4, it says, It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you to continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, John's joy in verse 3 is over Gaius' belief and his behaviors. He's faithful to professing the truth and to practicing the truth. And that brings John great joy. In fact, he has no greater joy than the fact that his children are walking in the truth. Now, children, in verse 4, children could refer to literal children. It's possible. More likely, though, John is thinking about people that he has led to Christ. Maybe Gaius is one of the converts who responded to the call to follow Jesus based on John's preaching. That's possible. Or... Um, people over whom he has spiritual insight. They're his children. Next month is Grace's 45th anniversary. The first meeting of our church was on May 12, 1974. And uh, to celebrate that in part, Herb Samworth, who was the founding pastor of this church, he's going to come and preach. It's going to be great. I emailed, about him, emailed him about that this week. Um, and asked him what he wants to preach about so that we can plan the service. And he said, I really want to preach from 3 John 1 through 4. I have no greater joy than my children are walking in the truth. So I wrote him and I said, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm just about to do that passage myself. But I said to him, I said, don't worry, it'll be a month. No one in the room will remember anything that I said about this passage. So you can do it and no one will know. And, uh, you know, He'll preach from this passage. We'll finally understand what it says. So it'll be good when he comes, right? Uh, I'm not sure. Wouldn't that be an appropriate passage, though, for that man to preach here? 23 years he was a pastor of this church, and many of you are his children. Hmm. Now, what does it take to say something like you would say in verse 4 about no greater joy? Certainly it's a comment on your values, isn't it? Right? What you value shapes what you joy, what, what brings you joy. This is not hard to figure out. It's not hard to figure out. If you value athletic skills and your son throws a perfect fastball, you rejoice. If you value academics and the report cards came home this week and the grades were high, you celebrate. If you value uh, physical beauty and your daughter tries on a dress and she looks great, you tell her so. Now, uh, none of those things are bad. You, you, 
a joyful encouragement over all of them is, is, is your responsibility as a parent. But verse 4 is about not just joy, but no greater joy. I have no greater joy. Uh, John's own values actually about this are, are apparent in verse 2. What does John value? I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along well. Now, some scholars have, have concluded from this that because John is praying for Gaius' health, that Gaius must have been sickly and he needed special prayer for health. Not necessarily. What's actually happening here is they've compared Third John with a lot of other ancient letters, and this is how often letter writers would begin their letters. They would have a sentence that would be very much like this, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you. Uh, New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce said that even we have opening letters where they would uh, abbreviate this sentence with the first letter, uh, a first letter of each of these words, kind of like uh, social media or texting. L-O-L, laughing out loud, right? You see, ever seen those guides? S-M-H, smacking my head. T-F-W, that feeling when. I remember reading about one mom who thought that L-O-L stood for lots of love. So her, she couldn't understand why her children were so upset when she texted them and said, I have terrible news to tell you, your great aunt Bernice died. L-O-L, okay? It doesn't mean lots of love. Doesn't mean lots of love. And Bernice is gone. That's apparently hilarious. <laughs> Actually, ancient letters. So if you look at verse 2, so I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you. They would have in Roman or in Latin or in Greek these initials I P T U M E G H A T A M G W W Y. Just to shorten that sentence. So I don't think Gaius is is particularly sick, but notice what really matters to him, that your soul is getting along well. His his priority is the prospering of his soul. Let everything else in your life fall apart except your soul. By the way, did you notice here, you can be suffering physically and suffering materially, financially, but still be prospering spiritually. Spiritually. Or think about this as a frightening prospect that John offers. John prays that Gaius would feel as as well in his body as he does in his soul. How healthy would you be if your physical health was a reflection of your spiritual health? What kind of shape would you be in? This reminds me of 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Paul says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourselves to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Gaius' spiritual health brings John joy. Is that what brings you joy too? We should acknowledge. We should acknowledge the pain that verse 4 brings too. Because if verse 4 is true, the opposite of this verse can be true too. I have no greater sorrow than to hear that my children are walking away from the truth. This series in John's letters has been hard for some of you because we've, we've read verses, we read it several times. 1 John 2.19, those who go out from us, those who leave They show that by their leaving, they were never a part of us in the first place. And that breaks your heart. 
I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Is that true in your house? Do your kids know that? I wonder how they would know that. Does your growth group know that you have no greater joy than to see that they're walking in the truth? That that brings you joy? It might take a long look to see that. Um, h- how do your kids know what brings you joy? What, what accomplishments of theirs brings you the greatest joy? I bet your kids know the answer. In fact, if you want to humiliate yourself, ask them sometime, what do you think in your life makes, makes mommy and daddy most excited? What do you think makes mom and dad most excited in your life? See what they say. It'll be instructive, won't it? Eternity-shaped joy. Now, there's one more sign of blooming truth that I want you to see here in this passage. It's actually the particular focus of Guy's life. It's thirdly here, mission-shaped service. Mission-shaped service. Verses 5 through 8. Let's read them again, shall we? Dear friend, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they're strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. The central expression of Gaius' love, how do we know Gaius loves people? Gaius loves them because of his hospitality, welcoming and caring for the needs of traveling Christian teachers. So the ancient world was filled with new churches, new churches here and there, uh, spread out with very young believers, and it was common for more mature Christians to travel around to these little churches and do teaching to them to try to raise up those new young believers in the faith. And there were also traveling church planners and traveling evangelists. There were no good hotels to stay in, so um, uh, Christians like Gaius, would open up their homes to these traveling teachers and preachers and evangelists. Verse 6 says, to welcome them or send them on their way in a manner that honors God, in a way that is worthy of God. If God were your guest at your house, how would you welcome him? Notice here there's three reasons in the text why Gaius welcomed these teachers. We'll go over these quickly. Three reasons. Number one, they went out for the sake of the name. Verse 7, it was for the sake of the name they went out. They went out for Jesus' sake. This is the only time that Jesus is mentioned here in this text, the name. They went out for Jesus. Uh, The second reason why Gaius welcomes these teachers, they're not getting help from unbelievers. They're not getting financial support from unbelievers. Verse uh, 7, they're receiving no help from the pagans. Um, they weren't charging people to hear them teach or preach. This is an issue that Paul dealt with. Remember, there were traveling teachers in the ancient world who would set up shop and charge money, and some of them did so as Christian teachers, and they charged a lot of money. In fact, in in the, the city of Corinth, Paul was criticized because he didn't charge enough money. They thought he must not be worth anything because he was preaching for free. Paul's principle was, freely you have received, freely give. So he wasn't receiving money from the, the, these teachers were not receiving money from the people they're serving. The third reason that uh, Gaius supports them, uh, when, you, when you support them, John says, you are partnering with them in their work. You're partnering with them in the work. Uh, actually, maybe it'd be better uh, you're partnering with them 
with the work, with the truth, actually, partnering with them with the truth. Verse 8, we ought therefore to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together. It says for my translation. Your translation might say with, and that would be better. With. We're working together with the truth. Gospel, the gospel and Gaius working together, partnering together in ministry. You should be encouraged by this text, brothers and sisters. You should be encouraged by this in our church. Here is clear New Testament teaching about supporting traveling missionaries and evangelists. Gaius didn't know all of them, but he supported them. And actually, it's an obligation that's laid upon us. Verse 8, we ought, therefore, we ought, obligation. Uh, this would be a helpful way to read, I think, Second and Third John. Second and Third John are about how local churches support Christian workers. Second John is about people you should not support, and Third John is about people you should and how you should support them. Grace gives generously to this work. Missions giving like this, like like John is writing about, is about 21 percent of our annual budget. That's twice most churches, evangelical churches, in America. Uh, When you give like that, you're partnering with the gospel. You're partnering with the gospel. You and the gospel and your money going to work in in, in spreading this message. Uh, If you've been around long enough, you remember the name Bud Belts. Some of you remember Bud Belts. Bud Belts was Grace's treasurer for a long time. He used to, it was so many years ago, he used to keep all of uh, Grace's records with a pencil and I think an abacus, I'm pretty sure. Um, Bud Belts used to call the treasurer's report a pra- the Praise the Lord Report. That's what he would title it. It would be called the Praise the Lord Report. Now, one of Bud's goals was to see how much our congregation was giving to missions. He wanted people to, instead of you individually sending money to, to people, that you give the money to the missions fund, tell us where you want the money, and then we would send the money out to those individuals. And the reason he wanted to do this is he wanted the church to be able to see all that we were giving towards missions. Uh, I don't, his, Bud's plan never worked really well. Um, the missions committee talked about this a few months ago. We, we contemplated asking you to report anonymously about your giving outside of the church to other missionaries or organizations. We decided not to do it. We, we decided not to do it because we thought that you wouldn't like us asking you about your money. And we weren't completely sure what we would do with that information anyway. But I bet it's a lot more than what comes... This congregation gives more to the gospel work than what comes in the plates. Some of the money goes uh, towards, some of our money goes toward special gifts for our outreach partners. Stephen, Donna, and Niles are returning from France for a couple months. They're going to land, I think, in New York on the 17th of April. Uh, we sent them gift cards to Walmart, so they, that's what they asked for, so that we could give them, uh, so that they could buy groceries. And uh, we gave them gift cards to restaurants as they travel around. Last fall, we sent a care package to the Sings. They live in India. It, was, uh, it had gotten cool enough that we could send them chocolate chips. And Rebecca Singh was getting ready to do a lot of baking for Christmas in order to share with her neighbors what Christmas is and what Christmas is about. Uh, the last, before that, we sent a package to Mike and Jenny Guy. Gee, there's not as many toy stores in Papua New Guinea as you might expect. So we sent them toys. You partner with the gospel when you bake cookies for FCA. I visited FCA at Millersville a couple weeks ago. It was great to see the rapport that Dan and Lisa have with the college students. You know how they build that rapport? They give them cookies. 
No offense, if you're in college, you're easily bought with cookies, okay? Just, just saying that. Think about it. Think about it. You, Dan, Lisa, the gospel, serving at Millersville University, and Nestle Tollhouse, serving at Millersville University, right? Uh, you partner with the gospel when you welcome our outreach partners uh, and listen to them with interest. So after the service, when our outreach partners come, we just scheduled Bob Johns to come again in June. He'll be here. Uh, after we have a, they, they speak in the service, uh, they meet with the missions committee. Our outreach partners are always happy to be here. They're always happy to be here because we're interested in what they do. We listen to them. I think I told you this before. One of our least well-known outreach partners in the church are the Souzas. Remember the Souzas? The Souzas serve in Brazil. Uh, Julio's English is limited, so he speaks in Portuguese, and his wife translates for him. They were here not that long ago. Um, they told us in that meeting afterwards that they feel like when they come to our church that this church feels like home. It surprised me because we don't know them very well, but we welcome them. We're interested in what they... They went out for the sake of the name. And for the sake of the name, we welcome them and we support them. Mission-shaped service, it's reason for joy. We should finish. It's, time. it's wonderful to see the signs of spring, isn't it? It's good to see them. The flowering trees, the daffodils, they remind us of what's coming next. Azaleas and rhododendrons, roses and daylilies, gardens with tomatoes and peas and carrots and even dreaded green beans will be blooming and growing soon. Then there'll be fields of corn and harvest time, pumpkins and squash. It's going to be great to see them all. Here's the blossoming of the truth. There are signs of it everywhere in our church. Signs of why we love one another. And signs of things that we bring us joy, that, that, over which we celebrate. And signs of how we serve blooming truth in our own congregation. Brothers and sisters, let's go for broke. Right? Let's do this more and more and more for the sake of that name. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are thankful to you for this man, Gaius, and the service that he rendered for Christ's sake and his expression of his love of the truth and his faithfulness to it. And Father, I give you thanks for the many expressions, signs of the grace of God in our own congregation, truth that blooms in how we welcome outreach partners and how we support them financially and how we pray for them and how we serve. Father, I'm thankful to you for the joy that is in our church over growth as, as we grow as in faithfulness and fidelity to the truth. And Father, I am, I am indeed thankful to you. I rejoice at your mercy, at the evidences of love gospel-shaped love in our church. Lord, you know how we, we continually need your help to resist impulses, to bear grudges, or to, to, to not befriend someone because they're outside of our group. Oh, we need help to do that. But we love the gospel, and the gospel helps us to draw, teaches us to draw one another in. And we're thankful, I'm so thankful to you for these brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Oh, help us, as Paul told the Thessalonians, to do this love, this joy, this service. Help us to do it more and more for the sake of Jesus. He's our Savior. He's the one that we love. He's the one who is coming to call us to himself, and we'll be with him forever. We pray with John that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we pray these things together in his name, saying, Amen. Let's stand in.